0: Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. The last time on the podcast during episode number nine, we took a quick weekend trip to Quincy, Massachusetts for the dedication ceremony of Stratton Way. That was an outstanding weekend. During this episode, we'll pick up the story again back in the Wallow Prison in Camp Unity in late 1970, just after the Sante Raid, force the north vietnamese to consolidate most of our pow's there in honor of veterans day we're going to be giving away some signed copies of prisoner at war the book published about the yankee air pirate in 1978 details of that in this episode last thing before we get back to the story happy veterans day to all the vets out there And also, a happy 244th birthday to our illustrious United States Marine Corps. Dad, welcome back. How's it going today? Ah, It's good for us to be here. Uh, First thing I want to say is happy Veterans Day weekend. We're recording this on Saturday of Veterans Day weekend. This is awesome. It is a grand day. So uh, the benefit to you on this one is, since it's uh, Veterans Day weekend, I don't care what time it is when we finish, you're going to get a nice bourbon from me after that. I'll take it. I'll accept
1: it with gratitude.
0: And your youngest granddaughter has something here that she wants to show us today uh, that she made up for us for Veterans Day. This is Annie Stratton. Hold the sign up here for us, Annie. Happy Veterans
1: Day. Thank you very much, Annie. Love you. That's nifty.
0: Love you, Annie. Thanks for making that up for us. I appreciate it. And we got some big things that we're going to talk about on this episode of the podcast. Um, I got some books up front here. And so for the people listening to the podcast right now, be sure to go into the details section of the podcast after you're done listening to this. And you can see the books that we're going to be giving away. We're giving away three prisoner of war books uh, that were written about my father by an author by the name of Scott Blakey. He published the book in 1978 and we have some copies left. So you can't, it's not in print anymore. You could go online and get a used copy somewhere, but you cannot get a personalized and signed book uh, personalized directly to you by the Yankee Air Pirate. Anywhere other than here, and we're going to be giving away these three books um, coming up here right at the end of the year. Uh, So I'm pretty excited about that, Dad. That's the first announcement we want to make. And then the second announcement is to announce our uh, partnership with the Fisher House Foundation. The Fisher House Foundation is an outstanding charity Um, that does so much for military family members uh, to take care of them when they are sick or wounded and they need to get a hospital stay. So can you tell me, Dad, a little bit about the Fisher House and what excites you so much about it?
1: Well, the Fisher House is set up so that a family can be next to the hospital where a wounded veteran is recovering. In many cases, the quality of the recovery is dependent on the support that individual is able to get from his family. And it becomes very close to our heart because, as you well know, your mother has been dedicated towards military families ever since the Vietnam War started. And she ended up being a deputy assistant secretary of the Navy for personnel and families. So we're very much interested in a quality charity that takes care of a military family as a whole and as a unit. And this outfit meets all the criteria.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It it's an outstanding uh, organization with an outstanding mission. The Fisher House is a home away from home for families and uh, of patients receiving medical care. Um we're really proud to be working with them. Uh so what we're going to do, we're going to give these three personally addressed signed books uh away to three different people that win a raffle between now and the end of the year. So what we're going to ask people to do is go into either the details section of this podcast episode where you will find the dedicated Fisher House Yankee Air Pirate charity page where you can give money directly to the Fisher House. It's a uh, 501c fully tax deductible. Uh, We ask you to make those uh, contributions and be as generous as you can. However, uh, it doesn't matter how much you uh, are able to give uh, for the contest, for the books. We understand that some people have the ability to give more than others. So what we're going to do, we're simply going to count up the people that gave. And if you give between now and the end of the year, you are going to get a ticket in the bucket And at the end of the year, we're going to pull those tickets out and we're going to choose three winners that will have their books federal express to them. And if you act fast, you have a way to double your chances of winning. If you donate now between now through Thanksgiving Day, uh, you will get your name in that bucket two separate times. So um, you will basically essentially double your chance to win one of these books here. So please remember to go into the details section. Look at this video we're doing now. You can see the books. Also go to the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page. The video will also be there. You can see this video and you'll be able to uh, watch it there. Make sure you like the page also because we've got lots of great pictures there for you. So um, next thing we'd love to do now, Dad, we're going to jump right into the lightning round like we always do. Let's go for it. And we've got a lot of mail that's coming in uh, at the uh, at our uh, email, which is theyankeiairpirate at gmail.com, uh, all one word. If you have questions or comments on any episodes, uh, please go ahead and hit us up on that email. Uh, we've got a few questions we're going to get to today. The first one is from a uh, U.S. Marine, a good friend of mine that I worked with at Pfizer. And you've met this guy. He's been here in town uh, on a couple of different occasions. And one time, uh, you and I went down and had coffee with him at Lily's Coffee Shop. His name's Jamie Bellish. Uh, Jamie writes, uh, he, he says, uh, You went through an absolute horrific experience at the hands of the North Vietnamese. How did you recover so well? What were the things that helped, your, helped with your emotional recovery as you didn't ever seem to be inflicted with PTSD or self-pity? So um, what, what, how do you respond to Jamie on that, Dad? Well, first of all, I had superb leadership. I remember complaining one day to
1: uh, Admiral, at that time, Commander Stockdale, tapping through the wall and I was feeling sorry for myself and he came back to me and he said, Dick, if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't be wearing a set of wings. So that kind of put it in perspective. Then my faith had a great deal, my Catholic faith, in giving me the strength to go and see uh, my way through the cards that were being dealt to me. And any time I thought that I was having it hard, I tried to imagine myself being nailed to a cross in the sunshine there in Jerusalem and decided I really didn't have it all that bad. So uh, things could be a lot worse. I had good leadership. I had good friends. I had a good, solid background. And I had a lot of people
0: around me who had a sense of humor. Okay? Okay. Good deal. Jamie has one more question for you too. Uh, He said, uh, he says, is there any opportunity to get your mother or other family members involved on the podcast for a home front uh, perspective on this whole experience? I'm going to let that one go to you because you're going to have some
1: arm wrestling to do with the rest of the family.
0: Yeah, I I get it. So uh, the the short answer to that, uh, Jamie, is yes, uh, we do plan to have other family members on the podcast in the future. Uh, I'm in the process of putting outlines uh, together uh, for episodes uh, uh, for a long time to come, and on the homecoming Uh, Episodes, We're definitely going to have my mom on that uh, and other family members. And uh, give me a little credit right now. Uh, Give me partial credit today, Jamie. I have my youngest daughter uh, on today. Uh, She made us the Veterans Day sign. Uh, So make sure you go and watch the video attached to this. So give me partial credit, my friend. Um, Next question is from Will Lanier. Uh, who's a good friend of mine. I work with him. He uh, lives in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, Will writes in, he said, in episode number nine, and others uh, also potentially, you discussed being in a seminary for many years to become a Catholic priest. Um, Why did you decide not to become a priest? And then he wrote in after that, he said, don't let him off the hook. I want to know an answer to this one.
1: Well, it's a legitimate question. Uh, in the old Catholic faith, you had one shot at being a priest. You couldn't be a priest if you were married. So you would better get that question out of the way before you entered the married state. And I determined that I ought to do the best thing I could with what was given to me, and that would be a priest and tried to force a, a vocation on myself. A vocation being having a calling. And I have a rather flat learning curve, and it took me six years to figure out I really didn't have a vocation. Now, you may ask, how do you know that? Well, take a look at this. I had, in high school, studied Latin for four years, was fiddling with Latin for six years in the seminary, and I couldn't say anything but the Our Father and the Hail Mary in Latin after all that time. The good Lord was sending me a message, so I took a hike. And besides, look at it in a positive way. Six years in the seminary is good preparation for six years in prison.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, Hopefully that'll satisfy Will. Uh, We'll check in with him. Uh, The next question uh, we're going to cover today is from another Marine, uh, retired Marine, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Colonies from uh, Valrico, Florida. He writes, I'm curious what your father thought Uh, when he heard about the moon landing. Uh, So I think you probably found out about this uh, from some of the shoot-downs over there, right? No, as a matter of fact, we didn't. If you recall the timing of that,
1: uh, Lyndon Johnson had laid off a lot of the bombing up north, so they weren't getting too many shoot-downs. And the information came to us by listening to the mandatory broadcast at night, when Hanoi Hanna, the voice of Vietnam, came on with the broadcast to the troops in South Vietnam and mentioned the words, The United States may be able to put a man on the moon, but they couldn't defend Saigon. And that was the first indication we had that uh, we had put somebody on the moon. We had a lot of people, uh, by a lot I mean a half a dozen people, who were qualified and working on becoming astronauts, So we had a lot of interest in the prison system in the success of the uh, moonshot and all the subsequent space uh, endeavors. So we were extremely pleased and really proud of our country and able to have guns and butter and do good work.
0: Okay, excellent. And so John Colonnese actually has one more question for you. He said, uh, in previous episodes, you mentioned that uh, U.S. aggression had a positive impact on you uh, while you were a prisoner. It, it, it forced the Vietnamese to bring you all together in a consolidated living conditions in, in fewer camps, so you weren't in isolation and in solitary anymore. Uh, John is curious If you can share in retrospect now, looking back now, as you look back on what happened, did the bombing, the intensified bombing in any way, shape or form, uh, help drive the Vietnamese back to the Paris Peace Accords? Uh, John got the impression that at, at a point in time, the Vietnamese walked away from the Paris Peace Talks and our aggression and bombing of North Vietnam Uh, pretty much forced them back to the table.
1: We were never so well treated as when the American uh, military uh, took the initiative and uh, took the battle to the enemy in South Vietnam and North Vietnam. Uh, The enemy that we were facing, the communists of Vietnamese, respected only strength and had nothing but contempt for pacifism and passivism. So when it came time for the Paris Peace uh, Talks to fish or cut bait, and the VC took a hike, Mr. Nixon, God bless him, decided that it was okay to bomb downtown Hanoi with B-52s and the rest of the arsenal he had at his hands. And we were never so well treated. We actually were given coffee in the morning in the midst of all those raids. The Vietnamese guards brought their families in and cowered next to the walls of our prison. They knew that in prison was the safest place from them because they recognized our people knew where the prison was and uh, would have avoided the best they could from hurting any of us. There is no doubt in my mind that I would still be in the Wallow
0: prison today if Richard Nixon had not bombed Hanoi. Okay, so sometimes... uh you, you just got instead of talking, you just got to show your strength. And, and that had a real good, positive impact for you guys. That's how you hit and take care of any bully, whether it's on the schoolyard or in the battlefield. OK. All right. Well, that that's good. That's going to about do it for the lightning round questions. Um, I want to acknowledge there's a lot of other questions that are out there that are coming in. Uh, we will get to all of them as quickly as we can. Um if you've got more questions, please continue to send those to our email at TheYankeeAirPirate at gmail.com. That's all one word, TheYankeeAirPirate at gmail.com. And we'll continue to get to those at the beginning of each episode. So, Dad, now let's kind of uh, level set here for a minute. Uh, we're back in Hanoi. We're going to pick up the story where we left off last last time. We're in Camp Unity Uh, Within the Wallow prison at the end of 1970, uh, soon after the Sante raid, where the Vietnamese knew they had to bring you all together because that uh, pretty much scared the daylights out of them, and um, you're all together, and what is life like for you guys at that time when they bring you all together. The last time we left off talking about this, we talked about briefly what it was all like. Uh, Did you get into a routine where you had uh, a routine of the day uh, in that camp at that time? Pat, that's a very difficult question because the basic fact is
1: that no two days were ever the same. No two cells were ever the same. No prisons were ever the same. There was no typical day. There was no typical POW. There was no typical reaction. There was no typical Viet Cong. It was a very disorienting place, to say the least. But yes, you're right to ask about a plan of the day, because that's how we survived. We made our own plan of the day, given the existing situations at the time. And it varied from
0: day to day. Okay. Okay. All right, fair enough. Well, so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And um, you uh, put together a document here for me that uh, you and I are looking at together uh, entitled The Camp Unity Daily Living. And I want to talk about that a little bit. But first of all, I want to remind everybody, uh, if you have not done so already, go back to episode number 8 where we left off uh talking about the experiences in Camp Unity last episode number 8 there is a youtube video embedded in that episode it shows pictures of the people places and things that we're talking about in that episode and in this episode including the Wallow prison and Camp Unity and um it would really bring things to life if you go in and look at that video. Again, it's embedded in the detail section of podcast episode number eight. Also, you can go onto Facebook and you can search for the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page and you can like that page. And then you can go into the photos section of the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page And go into the photo section and look for a photo album titled Video Links from the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Then click on the Yankee Air Pirate uh, patch picture and look at the description of that. All the YouTube videos are also there. It will really help to bring the subject matter that we're talking about today and in all the episodes uh, to life uh, for you better. So dad, let's talk about, uh, this daily, uh, living document that you put together here. So life is still no bed of roses for you guys over there. Um, but, and I know there's not a great, great routine because they try to, they try to disorient you and shake it up on you as best they can. But you noted that you all tried to create your own routine for your own sanity. So what time did you guys typically get up each day? Well, remember, there
1: were no watches and no clocks, so we were just basically estimating. But it seemed to me it was about uh, 0600 in the morning. Uh, Around dawn, just a little bit before, uh, they'd bang on a chunk of railroad uh, rail, Uh, with a sledgehammer or something, which was their wake-up gong and also their go-to-bed gong. And that would be the beginning of our day. And, of course, people uh, tend to neglect the uh, prosaic and uh, rather mundane part of life. But remember, somebody asked Bob Hope how he learned how to tap dance, and he said he lived in a house with one bathroom and there were seven kids in the family. And uh, picture yourself in a a one-toilet cell with 50 guys all trying to relieve themselves in the morning at the same time. We all learned how to tap dance. But uh, a regular thing was we had to take care of our own uh, sanitary needs. We had to keep our place clean. We had to empty all the human waste into a common city latrine. Uh, We had to make sure that we exercised ourselves and kept ourselves as clean as possible. So no matter what part of the day uh, you got to do that, you had to make sure that that happened. And of course, you were fed twice a day, probably around 10 and maybe again around three.
0: And you, when you're starving to death, you always look for food. So tell me uh, about the food because that was going to be the next question I was going to ask you. So for your morning meal, Uh, you said it was 10 o'clock, they they would feed you. What what would they give you typically?
1: It depended. It was a seasonal thing. First of all, in Hanoi, we were not getting rice. They were fighting the war over rice. Uh, Most of the good rice was um, uh, grown down in South Vietnam. Uh, The only unrationed food on their uh, market was wheat that they got uh, as charity from North Korea. So we got a chunk of uh, bread about the size of your fist, and then we got a bowl of either pumpkin, kohlrabi, or cabbage, whatever was in season, and you got about a quart of hot water, and uh, that was your meal, uh, both
0: for your brunch, if you will, and for your supper. So that the, the, the brunch was either pumpkin, kohlrabi, or cabbage soup, so to speak, correct? Right. And well, the same thing repeated again in the uh, in the late afternoon. Okay. Well, we used to celebrate that uh, on your Freedom Day. Uh, we do still celebrate Freedom Day every March 4th. Um, we don't have the pumpkin soup anymore. Maybe we ought to reinstitute that tradition, and maybe I should make you some pumpkin soup this coming March 4th. Well, actually, uh, the pumpkin soup was
1: perhaps the favorite, and you'd be doing us a favor. Because the worst thing was some kind of uh, when they were really starving and we were winning the war it was what we called sewer greens. They were shoots of bamboo that were barely digestible. So uh,
0: pumpkin was actually a treat. So thank you. I'll take that. Well, uh, I'll work at it and see if I c- I'll do the best I can to make pumpkin soup taste good. Roger right. you that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll give it a try. So after you ate... Um, You've got on this document the next thing is military interrogation. So, tell me a little bit about that. Are are they? This is now late 1970 into early 1971. Are they torturing you or other prisoners at this point in time now? Uh,
1: as a regular rule, they were not torturing. They you would torture a senior officer. An electronics warfare officer, or someone who was a squadron commander, or an air wing commander, they would, they're guaranteed to be tortured for military information. But if you remember from one of our previous sessions, in 1969, uh, the communist highest levels of the communist government came out and did away with torture as a general rule, which had been in practice from 1965 to 1969. So uh, most of us would find out that we were either going for a quiz, which we uh, called sort of an English lesson. There was no agenda, apparently, in a quiz. Then they'd call for uh, an exploitation session. These people were looking for some kind of propaganda from us. And then periodically you'd have somebody in uniform come in, and they would do uh, a, a legitimate military interrogation, trying to find out military information. But there was no uh, torture automatically attached to any of those three sessions.
0: Okay. Um, you you actually called it an English lesson for them. So that's really, you just felt like... Uh what were they trying to get out of it? If, they, if You didn't have any information after being a prisoner of war for so many years, so what did, do you think they were trying to get out of you in those sessions? Well, you'd have to take a look at each session.
1: Um, on, on the English lesson, it legitimately was an English lesson. Their best English speakers were in their State Department and uh, negotiating over in Paris. Uh, The next best interrogators were military interrogators seeking military information. And the propaganda part of the Army, they got the leftovers. So these people had a constant need to try and keep up with uh, English uh, uh, grammar, uh, the English usage, uh, slang words, and stuff like that. So uh, we tried to condition people. The best thing you do is not say anything, keep your mouth shut, because you were helping them no matter what you said. Uh, otherwise you try and confuse them, uh, and, and get them, uh, really wrapped around the ax. And one of our favorites was, uh, when they were stealing stuff out of our packages, uh, we told them that peanut butter was actually baby poop <laughs> and that we would use that to, uh, to take care of open wounds and they believed us. So peanut butter always got through. They wouldn't steal it after that, um, the, the height of a radar mast on an aircraft carrier, no matter how big the carrier or how it's weighted down, is always 50 feet. So you can always pretend that you're not giving them the right answer and then at the last minute say, I give up, I give up, it's 50 feet. Then the, the funniest one, Patrick, is uh, the Navy and the Air Force playing games against each other. I finally confess that a B-52 can't fly unless there's a bar and the bar is located at frame 52 in a B-52. And one of the crew members is trained as a bartender because it's a long flight between Guam uh, to South Vietnam and back again. Now imagine yourself being a new Air Force guy getting tortured to confess the location of the bar in a B-52. Now they got back at us by telling the Vietnamese that we had a swimming pool in Hangar Bay 2. Now picture yourself being tortured to admit where the swimming pool was in the USS Ticonderoga.
0: Yeah, that, and so did they actually believe that you had a bartender and a B-52? Uh, the
1: the higher-level quality um, interrogators from the military uh, got the joke. Uh, the, the political ones, were uh, they, they were free game. They, they were a lot of fun when you really got right down to it. But see, they had to keep up with, with all the peace groups coming over from the United States. They had to practice their English so
0: they'd look smart in front of these peace groups. Okay. All right. Well, another thing that that you've got on here that's interesting to me, you you say if cells are permitted out in the courtyard, they're isolated from each other and screened off from visual contact. So you uh, initially, when you were in Camp Unity, again, and we talked about this last time, you started off in cell number seven, and you were in cell number seven up until the point where you all had the big church riot that I think we talked about on a previous episode. And then soon after that, they moved you. They moved you to cell number one, where you were with uh, a bunch of other POWs. They kind of mixed things up on you. So are you saying when if they let you out in the courtyard area, Did they never let you out at the same time as anyone else from people in other cells so you could not socialize with anyone else? Is that how they worked it? Well, you have to um, look at Camp
1: Unity as basically being half of a, a city block. So there was quite a bit of land there. So if I was let out of cell seven. They built a bamboo screen around the horse trough that we used for bathing, and basically a uh, maybe 20-foot by 20-foot exercise area and had built up a large bamboo wall so you couldn't see over it into the other part of the courtyard where, um, say, cell one was or cell two was. So they made sure they didn't let cell one and two out at the same time. They'd let cell one and cell three out at the same time and try to keep you from talking and communicating with each other. They were not able to do it, but that was the game they played. Okay.
0: okay. Well, a- another thing that you've got, you've got this document. It's basically broken out by times. Uh, and so between 1000 and 1,300, uh, one of the items that you said you you would all typically do is inside cells, when you're in the cells, work of the ship, clean and sweep down, uh, fore and aft, to keep things clean, uh, repairs to possessions and clothes, uh, manufacture of rep- recreational items such as cards, chess boards and chess pieces, cribbage boards. Um, what the heck were you making uh, chess boards and chess pieces out of and playing cards out of? How, how did you do that in those kind of conditions that you were in? Well, the most common thing that we had access to was uh, each uh,
1: prisoner was issued a chunk of paper towel uh, to use as toilet paper, and you'd get a couple of chunks that were supposed to last you for 30 days, which was a joke. Everybody had diarrhea. Uh, It had the uh, consistency uh, of double-aught sandpaper, but it was excellent for writing, for making documents for floating notes in your manure and stuff like that. Uh, they were handing out packs of cigarettes to the leader of the cell to issue each guy three cigarettes. The cigarette package was the most valuable piece of paper that you possibly could get because it was a good medium for using uh, brick dust ink and uh, writing notes on that type of stuff. Uh, anything we could steal. For example, you better count the pens on this table and in your kitchen because uh, I have had a habit I picked up in jail of any writing instrument to steal it, and I still find myself
0: doing that. So you're going to steal my pen today? Absolutely, so <laughs> don't take your eye off it. All right, I won't let go of it. And then how, how did you manufacture the chessboards? What What did you make that out of? Was that Did you draw that on the floor of the cell?
1: Actually, you could... Uh, One of the guys figured out a way to make some kind of paste, and I don't understand what they used, but we would paste together these chunks of paper towel, toilet paper, and uh, make a chessboard out of that.
0: Okay. And then, uh, again, also between 1000 and 1300, another thing that kept you guys busy is School of the Ship. And you sent me a document that talked about some of the different topics that were included in School of the Ship. And, and you were also telling me that it was required that everyone participate in a class every day, I believe six days a week. Oh, absolutely. The, um, our, our seniors realized that
1: idleness was going to kill us. And uh, if we let our minds go fallow, that we'd end up being nothing more than a bunch of animals. So they insisted that we improve ourselves and charged each person to teach that which he knew best, uh, put it together as a course. And then you would offer your course, whether it was uh, physics, auto mechanics, uh, culinary arts, whatever you happen to have as your expertise, you'd offer it and people would sign up for your course. And usually there were uh, anywhere from 10 to 20 sessions. And... Each day, you would come up and offer that session. Now, for those whose minds really did, were not that disciplined, uh, we also had movie on Saturday. <laughs> the new shoot-down had to tap through the wall the plot of the latest movie that he had seen just before he got shot down. If you can picture tapping the sound of music through the wall, and then if you received it as the movie officer, you had to get a couple of guys together and come up and produce
0: the sound of music from what you learn by tap code. Good luck. Wow, that that sounds like a challenge. What was your favorite class to take in school over there? Mine, I was uh, Spanish. I still can't speak it, but uh, mainly because Norland
1: Daughtry uh, was a guy who survived the Cuban uh, interrogator's master program on learning how to break Americans there that lasted for a year, was a marvelous guy, and he spoke Tex-Mex and uh, used to run a ranch and knew how to deal with cowboys and cowhands. So instead of learning schoolbook Spanish, we were learning cowboy
0: Spanish, and it was kind of interesting and exciting. Okay, and how, how about uh, which class did you teach? Did you actually teach any of the classes? Right. I was one of the instructors for the uh, basic toastmasters course. So you're the public
1: speaker in the group then. huh? Well, yeah, I was uh, at least it, no, sometimes I had to be the I had to be the timer. You can't have toastmasters unless you're running against a clock. And we found some physicist to come up with a formula, stole a chunk of soap and made a pendulum. And so you had to sit there and count the swing of the pendulum to time a guy's five-minute speech. Now, if you want a stultifying task to really numb yourself out, boy, that's it. So being a timer for Toastmasters in jail was not a good one. The rest of it was great. All
0: right, that sounds good. And then um, at 1300, uh, the gong went off again and uh all the north vietnamese wanted to take their afternoon siesta huh the whole country the whole country just went just checked out and, and uh spent 2 hours
1: which we thought was great because immediately we went to general quarters because it was our
0: best most lucrative communication time and so what did you guys do during that time when they all went uh down uh for for their siesta Uh, What were you trying to get accomplished during that period of time through communication?
1: Well, uh, we had to link up uh, the seven cells with the leaders who were over on the side of the prison we called Rawhide and find out what they had for us. They always had something. Uh, Senior officers can't keep their mouths shut. They always got to be doing something. And, uh, you get a bunch of senior officers together, all chiefs and no Indians. They they have a horrendous output. So we had to set up the net and get it going around the perimeter from cell to cell. And that required setting up our own lookouts to keep the guards from finding us communicating. Setting up our communicators, whether it was tapping, banging on the slab of the floor, or using the uh, deaf spelling code visually through the window. It probably took about 15 minutes to get the the net online. Actually, we were doing quite well compared even today. And then it was a matter of, in priority, passing names. Make sure we had all the names of the new shoot-downs, new people in camp. Uh, If somebody went missing from camp, make sure that that was noted. And then the second thing was resistance posture. What are they after today? And what are we doing to resist what it is they want? whether it was the military, the political, or just the quiz people. What were they after? We tried to coordinate the games we played on the English lessons so we didn't trip over each other with where the bar was located in an airplane or the swimming pool. We were trying to get more sophisticated in fouling up their minds. And uh, then we'd get all the instructions from the seniors, and they always had a mess of them. Uh, Then we'd pass the movie of the uh, week. We'd pass... uh, yeah, uh, plain old gossip and then get
0: down to passing jokes. Okay. Good deal. And then uh at fifteen thirty approximately is when they brought you your second meal of the day. And you shared before that was uh basically a repeat of the morning meal. Um, correct? Right. Pumpkin, colorabi, cabbage. With, you know, if they gave you pumpkin soup in the morning, Would they give you pumpkin soup at night, too, or would they mix it up and give you kohlrabi and let you have a little variety in the day?
1: Well, they weren't interested in variety. Remember, these were the crops as they came into uh, fruition. So uh, perhaps the whole North Vietnamese army was eating pumpkin at the same time. And then when pumpkin ran out, kohlrabi started to, uh, I don't think it ever matured, but it uh, was rather chewy. And then cabbage was with us forever, I guess. But no, they didn't try for variety. They just had what was on the market and cheapest.
0: All right. So you you may have pumpkin soup every day, twice a day for a week or more. Oh, yeah, probably two months. Okay. All right. Um, and then at about 1,800 or 6 o'clock, for those of you uh, not liking the military time, uh, you had lockdown uh, for the night. And... Um, Again, school of the ship. So you guys went to to school twice a day.
1: Well, they had you figure there were um, in like in cell one, there was between forty and fifty of us. You have forty and fifty different courses being taught. I mean, you had a regular university going there. Okay, so there was plenty. There was plenty of stuff to keep you moving.
0: Okay, and then you also after after the lockdown for the night, you had fun and games. So that I imagine that's when you're breaking out your chess boards and your cards and uh having a good time together.
1: Absolutely because during the day they wouldn't let more than 4 people uh sit together at the same in the same place at the same time because they considered
0: any more was a mutiny. Okay. And then at uh 2000 uh what happened then at 2000 each evening?
1: Well, about that time, they played over a loudspeaker system. There was a speaker in every cell. Um, uh, the voice of Vietnam, uh, we called her Hanoi Hannah. and occasionally we'd we'd hear Jane Fonda making uh, treasonous speeches to the troops down south. So we had to listen to that uh, education, as they called it, and then we had to put up our mosquito nets, and everybody had to be down. No one could be up walking around the guards would come in and uh and hassle or pull you out if you were seen walking around anywhere except between your bunk and the head
0: okay and then uh the, the last thing on here um it says lights always on so i'm not sure if i knew this and forgot it uh, or not but uh so the lights were always on that so you never had dark in there to sleep and the only place i was in
1: uh in the dark pat was when I had refused to go home and they separated me from Doug Hegdahl, I was in a blacked-out room for 40 days, and that was the only time I saw any dark in six years.
0: Okay, wow. Um, all right, well, that, that gives a, a pretty good idea of what, what the routine is. And during this point in time, uh, in in Hanoi that you lived uh, in Camp Unity, first in cell number seven, uh, there there is just a a bunch of really terrific individuals that you lived with that had a significant impact on your life. Some of uh, some of them before uh, you went to Vietnam, uh, like Admiral Jim Stockdale, you met him at Stanford. You are in cell number seven with him, Admiral Bill Lawrence. Uh, You met him there over in Vietnam, but you would come to work for him later at the Naval Academy as his deputy for operations when he was the superintendent of the Naval Academy. Then they moved you out to cell number seven, and you live with uh, some other really significant people that uh, had a big impact on on all of our lives later. Uh, Captain Ned Schumann, you live with Ned Schumann there, or Nasty Ned as they called him. Lived next door to us at the Naval Academy when we were living there in the late seventies, early eighties. And he was the CEO of Naval Station Annapolis also worked for Admiral Lawrence. And, um, I remember Admiral or, uh, Captain Schumann coming over to our house every weekend. He always wanted to go sailing. He loved, sail. he was an excellent sailor and had a nice sailboat of his own. And, uh, I'll tell you, I went with him a few times, but if you drop one of his sails and and got it wet in any way, he would let you have it. So I know exactly why they call him Nasty Ned. Uh, I think Mike liked to sail more than I do because Mike put up with it more than I did and he sailed a lot, but he's an incredible sailor. He sailed uh, for anybody that's interested in sailing should look up the 1979 Fastnet race. Uh, There's a book written about it, Fastnet Force 10. A huge storm hit that race in 1979, and of 303 yachts that started that 600-mile race over in England, only 86 finished. Ned Schumann's boat was one of those that finished, but um, he got in a little bit of trouble for that because once he got back to England, he had a bunch of midshipmen on that yacht with him, and I think he took the midshipmen to the bar for a beer, and they didn't get around to calling Admiral Lawrence for a good little while to let him know that they were one of the few boats that made it back okay. Uh,
1: Ned schumann had the attention of the entire command structure of the U.S. <laughs> Naval Academy for about ten days, and uh, he he lived uh, a, a charmed life. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. But, boy, I'll tell you, you're right. Uh, he
0: could bite, and you'd feel the bite. Yeah, I, I certainly felt that bite myself a few times. But, um, anyway, anybody interested in, in in sailing should look up the uh, 1979 Fastnet race. And if you read Fastnet Force 10, uh, you'll find Ned Schumann in there. Who was, He was the uh, commanding officer for— the uh, Naval Academy yacht that was uh, entered in that race, and they did very well. Um, So now uh, I want to tell, well, before we tell one more really cool story, uh, before we finish things up today, um, what I do want to talk about is we've talked a lot about Camp Unity in Hanoi, uh, which is where they brought a lot of the POWs a lot of the younger POWs they brought up north to the Chinese border. So can you tell tell everybody a little bit more about that, where they brought them? Do you know much about what their living conditions were up there on the Chinese border? And again, why did they bring them up there? Why did they put them up there separately from you?
1: It's uh, unknown why these people did many of the things they did to us. When The best thing we can do is guess. Uh, Our estimation is that they believed that our country could and would invade North Vietnam if we chose to, and the Sante raid was proof of that. So they decided to take the younger men who had greater longevity and greater value as hostages and put them on the Chinese border in case we did invade, they could be dumped over into China and held a hostage there. They took the older men, and they couldn't. we weren't of much use to them, so they put us next to where there were lucrative targets in downtown Hanoi, figuring it would help them insulate their targets from bomb damage. So I think that's why they made the separation. I did not live up north, but I understand from my friends reporting that the conditions were primitive, There was no electricity. Uh, They had a very little bit of uh, kerosene and limited use of a kerosene lantern at various times. Uh, Anytime that the sun was down, they basically were out of business because of the limited use they had of kerosene lamps. Uh, The food was primitive. The kitchens were primitive. And they were bored to tears because they were not able to contribute uh, to each other uh, the school of the ship type material we were, uh, the, just our sheer numbers in Hanoi, we were able to steal greater amounts of paper and other stuff like that to improve the quality of our life. They did not have that opportunity, so um, they uh, they had a very hard time up there. That's the best I can say.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, I'd like to find out more about that, and and p- potentially talk to a POW who spent time uh, up there, and that, and uh, we'll do that later. Um, we have time for one more topic today, and we've got to cover this topic today because we're recording this on Veterans Day weekend. Monday is Veterans Day. And it's the Marine Corps birthday. And by the way, did you know your granddaughter, Allison, went to the Marine Corps birthday ball last night with General uh, Stackpole and Mrs. Stackpole in Honolulu? Did you find that We
1: We got a picture about 30 minutes ago with uh, Lieutenant General Hank Stackpole, uh, Vivian Stackpole, uh, their son. And your very gorgeous daughter, my extremely gorgeous Coast Guard daughter in an evening gown celebrating the Marine Corps birthday in Honolulu. Yeah,
0: they, they had a great time, so I appreciate the stack polls inviting Allison to be there. But so since we've got such a big weekend, we've got uh, Veterans Day weekend, Veterans Day on, on uh, Monday, and we've got the Marine Corps birthday being celebrated this weekend as well, um, we're going to tell this last story. And it's a story of American ingenuity, American creativity. And it's a story uh, about uh, a Marine, uh, retired Colonel Orson Swindle, uh, who was very hungry, had lost a lot of weight and was trying to think of some innovative ways to get the Vietnamese to give him and you all Uh, Some additional food. So can you tell us about how the United States National Donut Day started? Well,
1: um, I think most of us can agree that the 10th of November is the birthday of the United States Marine Corps and uh, in October Orson Swindle was in jail in North Vietnam And the Vietnamese are pumping him for information on, uh, like, what do Americans do to celebrate holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving? And they were fishing for some sort of thing so they could make a big deal for propaganda purposes for visiting dignitaries. And Orson, of course, wasn't giving them the time of day. But all of a sudden, the light comes on. As you say, hunger can do wonderful things for you. And he decided that he would describe to the Vietnamese the greatest American holiday in existence. And that was National Donut Day on the 10th of November. And every year, we would have this magnificent pastry. And Orson went and described to them various types of uh, plain donuts and coated donuts and sugared donuts and on and on and on. And they were taking assiduous notes. And sure enough, on the Marine Corps birthday, the doors open, the chow comes out, and here are all kinds of fancy French pastry. Now, the Vietnamese learned a little bit from the French, and one of the things was they could make good pastry when they wanted to. And they manufactured all kinds of different donut-shaped type things and gave them to the prisoners. So thanks to Orson Swindle, the Vietnamese and North Vietnamese celebrate
0: National Donut Day every 10th of November. Yeah, well, that that's outstanding. So um, and if anybody wants to read a little bit more about that, they can also go on the Internet and Google uh, National Donut Day, Orson Swindle, and there's articles that will pop up on that Um That that's a pretty funny story, and it just goes to show you there's uh, a there's a lot of ingenuity and creativity over there in Vietnam, a way to figure things out and make it happen, get some food where you weren't getting any before.
1: Well, as you can see, actually, uh, we were having a good time at their expense.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to leave it there, and I appreciate you doing this again with me, and I love you a lot. Love you, pal. Let's go get some bourbons. I'm ready. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Don't forget, if you'd like to enter the raffle to receive one of the signed Prisoner at War books, please make a donation to the Fisher House. With all the great American patriots we have listening to our podcast, we can all come together to do great things for the outstanding Fisher House mission. Use the Fisher House link embedded in this episode of the podcast under the details section or you can go to facebook and go to the yankee air pirate facebook page you can make a tax deductible donation to the fisher house from there as well using our dedicated yankee air pirate link we appreciate all our listeners semper five